One of the things that I absolutely hate is when I show up somewhere only to realize that I've forgotten something. It's happened way too many times. Show up at the airport, where's my boarding pass? Can't find my keys. I've actually come up, sermon, and I don't know where page six is on my notes. In fact, I, I hate this so much that when I'm, um, when I'm trying to figure out what my day's gonna be like, I kind of replay what I'm gonna be doing, where I'm gonna be going, and things of that sort, because I, I just hate the feeling that I'm gonna forget something. My guess is many of you can resonate with this. You've maybe gotten your kids in the car, asked them all the questions. Did you remember this, remember this, remember this, remember this? And as you're traveling along, there's this sick feeling, like I know I forgot something, what is it? In fact, I have a little regimen that I do whenever I'm traveling. I'll take my suitcase, I'll lay it out. After I've packed it, I'll go through um, sort of a mental checklist. I'll got my shoes, got my socks, got my pants, got my underwear. You can say underwear in church, just so you know. Um, I got t-shirt, I got shirt, jacket. I kind of go through that regimen because I've showed up places and I got no socks. Got the wrong shoes, or I got the wrong um, notes, and I just, I, 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 I just hate to do that. In fact, even this week it happened that I was up early, had a morning breakfast, and I'm scurrying around the house because I, I can't find my wallet. In fact, intentionally, my phone and my wallet go together, and I got a new wallet that allows those things to be disconnected from one another, big mistake, and so I couldn't find my wallet. I'm searching all over the place. I gotta go, I'm gonna be late, and so I, I just give up, grab my wife's purse, steal a credit card from her, jump in the car without my wallet and drive really slowly, really carefully. I go to the meeting and, and, and all, way, all the, through the meeting, I'm thinking, where's my wallet? Where did I put my wallet? And did I leave it? No, it's in the house. I know it is. In fact, on the way to the meeting, walking to the meeting, I texted my wife and said, can't find my wallet. Keep your eye out for it. And as I'm sitting there in the meeting, the person's talking to me. Like, rah, 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 rah. Where's my wallet? Where's my wallet? Where's my wallet? And suddenly my phone dings. It's my wife. And she's like, I found your wallet. It's like, awesome. It was in the bed. It's a long story, I won't, I'll spare you, but, but I found it, and then I could finally listen to what's, uh, what's being said. I'm sure that you can resonate with that. There's, there's a sense of, when I'm anticipating something's coming, I want to be prepared. And friends, what relates to packing, what relates to your day, in a very small way, connects to where we live. But in a larger context, it's really imperative that you're prepared as a Christian exile for what's gonna come your way. So the same thing that applies in regards to thinking about what should be in a suitcase applies to thinking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in an increasingly hostile world. How do we prepare? What do you pack when you anticipate opposition is coming your way? Peter is writing to a group of people who had become exiles, although they never left their own country. They didn't leave their cities, their workplaces. They didn't even leave their homes, and they became exiles. The suffering that they're experiencing was not government-sanctioned. It wasn't official. It was rather that there was just this sense that things were starting to intensify around them, and Peter writes to these believers in order to help them understand how does a Christian think about themselves? How do we think about suffering in general? And then for that matter, how do we respond in the right way when you feel the pressure of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? For some of you, 
That question is not theoretical. That's where you're living right now. Or the thought of inviting someone to come to Easter means I gotta go there and I don't know how that's gonna go. Maybe you're starting to feel the pressure around you. People are starting to ask you perhaps uncomfortable questions. Or maybe at your work you start to look a little bit ahead and you can kind of predict that there's something that's coming that it's gonna be a challenge. So 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17, is one of the sections in 1 Peter that really gives us a very clear understanding of how to think in the midst of suffering. So what I want to do is I want to boil this down into five questions that you ought to ask yourself if you're a follower of Jesus. How do I make my way through suffering and difficulty? So there's five questions we're going to ask. And these questions, I want you to think of them sort of like my regimen while I'm packing a suitcase. Okay, think through these five questions as either opposition is starting to come your way or for some of you, if you're right in the middle of it. First question, am I keeping an eternal perspective? Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So Peter starts from the, from the onset, helping us to understand that Christian exiles constantly live in two realms. The word now is connecting verses 13 to 17 to verses 10 through 12 that we looked at last week. And just to remind you, in verses 10 to 12, Peter quotes Psalm 34, which was a reminder that the things that he said about God being open to your prayers, hearing the cry of the hurting person, and that God someday is gonna make everything right, that's not just a promise that Peter is saying, it's grounded in the scriptures. That's why he quotes Psalm 34. So then he takes that to the next logical conclusion, And he uses words that are connected to some significant emotions. Words like harm. Words like blessing. Peter's identifying that Christians live in two realms constantly. We've seen this in 1 Peter already. Meaning that you're you're born physically, but then you're spiritually born again, according to chapter 1 and verse 3. So you live in two realms. You have real houses and real lands and real families in this life, but you also have a real inheritance, according to chapter 1 and verse 4, that is imperishable and kept in heaven for you. Christian exiles are citizens of the country in which they live, But at the same time, they're a holy nation, a a people for God's own possession, according to chapter 2 and verse 9. They're a part of an earthly ethnicity. They're black, white, Latino, Asian, Indian. But they're also a chosen race. They're a royal priesthood. So the idea is that Christian exiles fundamentally live in this constant two-realmed mindset and suffering at any level, persecution at any level, opposition, reminds us, oh, that's right, I don't just live for my job. I'm not just living for my kids. I'm not just living for some sort of American dream. Like, I'm here not just for this. As wonderful as this is, I've got a citizenship in another kingdom. I've got a relationship with another world. And I live in this world, but I'm not only living in this world. So in verse 13, Peter uses the word harm. He says, 
So who is there who can harm you? So he's trying to speak to the emotional side of the ledger. This idea of who is there to harm you is meant to give hurting people some level of hope and confidence. Additionally, he says, you'll be blessed. If you suffer, verse 14, for righteousness' sakes, you will be blessed. The idea is what Peter is doing is he's connecting this harm, the absence of harm, rather, and this promise of blessing in a way that he's targeting the problem of fear. In verse 14, he'll speak to this directly. But what Peter aims to do here is to simply give hurting, potentially persecuted people two very important promises. And it's this, listen to me carefully. No one can ultimately harm you. We sang about it, I love it. He has no rival. Like that's, a, that's a great word. He has no rival. He has no equal, meaning no one can harm you. Why? Because he's seated on the throne, that's why. Because he's king of kings and lord of lords, and as well, no earthly loss can ultimately affect you. So the promise in the midst of suffering is that no one can harm you and that no loss can ultimately affect you. Now this, this is not just what Peter says. Hmm. Now, the book of Romans says the same thing. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, this is sounding very similar that Paul identifies in Romans chapter eight that those who are followers of Jesus are given great promises in Christ such that they are safe and they are victorious. Look at what it says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for we, your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know why that's in the Bible? That's in the Bible because when people are free from harm or the fear of harm and when they're free from the fear of loss, You know what they are? They are unstoppable. So, the first question we need to ask ourselves as it relates to the potential of suffering or opposition that's coming our way is whether or not we are thinking with an eternal perspective. Whether or not we're thinking in a two-world sort of mindset. Because your boss or that policy or your friends in high school, or that particular post that just landed on Facebook or an Instagram or Twitter can put pressure on you and you begin to emotionally respond in light of the earthly reality and you neglect the fact that, no, no, I'm a citizen of another kingdom. I am a person who's part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So this is one of the unusual blessings of opposition is that it helps us to see if we really value the other realm. 
Romans 8, 18 says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And that's in your Bible. The question is, do you believe it? Well, when opposition comes, that's when you believe it. And you're like, no, I live for this other realm. I don't live for this realm. I don't want them to not like me, but I don't live so that they like me. I want my job, but I don't want it at any cost because I work for Christ, not my employer alone. So the way you prepare for worship then, or the way you prepare for suffering then, is to be reminded that through the word and through our singing, we are pointing our hearts towards an eternal perspective. So the first question is, am I I thinking in this two-realm mindset? Here's the second thing. The second question to ask yourself is, am I more affected by the fear of man or by the love of Christ? So Peter now very specifically addresses two critical issues, the issue of fear and the issue of anxiety. He says in verse 14b, have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy. He raises the issue of fear because suffering or hardship or opposition calls into question in this moment, who do I really fear? Who do I really respect? Who do I really love? Are we gonna obey God or are we gonna obey man? So the second question invites us to not only consider the earthly versus the heavenly perspective, but also the evaluation of seriously, who's more influential in my life? My friends or Jesus? Who's more influential in my life? My my employer or my God? Who's more influential in my life? What people think of me or what Jesus thinks of me? And in verse 14, Peter speaks into these issues of fear and anxiety, which at one level ought to really be encouraging because if you feel fear or you feel anxious, you need to know that every follower of Jesus feels fear and feels anxious. And just to feel fear and just to feel anxious doesn't mean that you failed. Some of you live in this mindset, oh, because I'm afraid, I've already failed. No, you haven't. Or because I feel anxious, I've already failed. No, you haven't. In fact, we'll see in a moment that Jesus himself was battling through anxiety, wrestling through being troubled as he considers the cross. So what is fear? Fear is the emotion that you feel because you anticipate that something bad is going to happen. You anticipate that something's going to be painful. It's an understandable emotion that's connected to your experience. And here's the thing, as you get older, I think fear is more challenging. And here's why, because you have a more clear record of what can go wrong. When you're young, you're somewhat fearless because you're ignorant of what could happen. As you get older, you're like, well, I saw what happened when that guy said that. I saw what happened when he said that in the meeting and he got passed over for the promotion. Like, like I actually saw what happened. I saw what, how they looked when he said that. And as a result, you get a little bit of a, of a sense of what can happen, and as a result, your, your, your sense of fear and your sense of maturity and experience can kind of go hand in hand, and yet fear can come out of nowhere. 
You know, this isn't related to suffering or persecution per se, but when I go to the dentist, I have to really, really work at not being afraid. When I sit in that chair, I feel like a seven-year-old kid. And for good reason. When I was young, I had lots of dental work, and for whatever reason, they, they couldn't always numb the nerve. And so I've had a lot of dental work where I was like, it hurts. And they're like, it's fine. It's not fine. No, no, it's fine. You, you, you just, it's just pressure. It's not pressure. It's pain. No, no, it's pressure. And, and I got this, this smoke coming out of my mouth. And it's just, and, and, and so when I sit in that chair and I hear that whiny noise of that drill and it starts to touch on my teeth, I got to work really, really hard not to freak out. In fact, when I get out of the dentist office, straight up, I want a sticker. Because I did it, right? And as hard as I tell myself, don't be afraid, you're 46 years old for crying out loud, don't be afraid. I, I have fear, it comes, and I have to deal with it, but I can't tell myself, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. That little thing starts and I just, I wanna be out of there. And the reality is that living as a person who's an exile in the world means that there are gonna be some things that are gonna come your direction that are just gonna be straight out scary. The question in that moment, though, is what are you going to do? Or there's things that are going to be troubling. That's the other word. Don't be afraid. He says don't fear them, nor be troubled. This word is a little less than fear. The idea is to be in, in mental anguish. This is the same word that is used in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 27, to describe what Jesus was wrestling with in the garden. It means that you're, you're focused on what you're your thoughts are and what is in front of you and how difficult it's going to be. So listen, if we're honest, fear and anxiety can become the primary motivators in what you don't say or what you don't do. So what do you do if that's your situation? How do you fight through fear? How do you fight through anxiety? Well, the text tells us, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, you know how you fight fear? By eclipsing the emotions of fear with the beauty and the worth of Jesus. You get him high. One of the reasons why it's important for us to sing and listen to the word, why, why you ought to listen carefully and hear the beauty of what, what I'm trying to help you see is the exaltation of Christ in this text and in every text because I know that when you leave, you're gonna have to fight fear and you can't tell yourself, don't be afraid, but you can say, look at Jesus. Look at him. Christians are commanded to honor Christ the Lord as holy. We're to, we're to weigh the power and the authority of those who we would fear in light of the weightiness of Jesus' promise to be for us and not against us. And then by our actions, we give evidence that we really believe that Jesus is the Lord. That we really believe that he's the one who controls the events of our lives. And so when you're walking through opposition, one of the questions that you need to ask our, yourself is whether or not you believe that Jesus really has no rival. Does he have no equal? 
And we need to preach that truth to ourselves over and over to ask yourself, what, what's really motivating here? Why am I so afraid of them? Why am I so filled with anxiety? Why am I succumbing to the fear of man? And the solution is to get Jesus in the forefront of your mind and heart. Listen, this is where Martin Luther went in the 16th century. When his life was threatened because of his views on faith alone, he wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. Second verse is primarily about the person of Jesus. And he's pointing his heart to who Jesus is. In fact, this is what he said. Let's, let's, let's do this. Let's just not read it. Let's sing it and be reminded about the beauty of Jesus. You ready? Here we go. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be loose. Jesus, we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does that smooth and maybe Christ Jesus it is he? The times Martin Luther said, and he must win the battle. And I wonder how many times you may need to say that to your own heart this week. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Third question, am I talking about Jesus with clarity and kindness? So again, as you're sort of packing for the potential of opposition, not only asking yourself, am I living with a two-kingdom mindset? Am I more afraid of man or am I more in love with Christ? Here's the second thing. Am I talking about Jesus with clarity and kindness? So this question relates to responding the right way when, when suffering or opposition comes and when that suffering creates an opportunity for a conversation. The text says, Always prepare to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, some people read that and they think, oh, this is about apologetics. And apologetics at one level could fit this text, but, and there's nothing wrong with apologetics, like how to defend the Christian faith and sort of rational arguments. But I don't think that's primarily what Peter has in mind here. I think instead what he has in mind is that when suffering comes and it creates an opportunity that somebody asks you, why are you choosing to do this, that rather than giving an apologetic, you simply explain the beauty of what it means that you are a follower of Jesus, that's why, as opposed to somebody asking you, why in the world would you make that decision or why would you suffer and you find some sort of off-ramp explanation that avoids acknowledging the name of Jesus? Opposition creates gospel opportunities. For some of you, the most poignant and beautiful opportunity for you to make the gospel clear are the moments when opposition is incredibly strong and people look at you and go, why aren't you freaking out? 
Like, why aren't you mad like everybody else about this? Or, or why are you taking this stand? Why aren't you going along with us? And in that moment, you have the opportunity to connect your decision and your behavior with the person of Jesus or just say something like, well, I just don't want to. But I don't, I don't like that. So, what Peter has in mind is this moment that comes and people ask you and then you tell them. Imagine a young man who's a college student and he shows up at a party and everything's fine and then it's not. People are getting smashed and there's all kinds of sinful behavior going on. He looks around and he says, you know what? This isn't for me. And he starts to walk out of the door and one of his buddies says, hey, where are you going? He's like, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, this isn't for me. Why? At that moment, he's got about a millisecond decision to decide. I want to go to bed. There's a TV show I want to watch. Or does he take the risk of saying, look, bro, I'm a follower of Jesus, and this just, this doesn't work for me. I'm, I'm choosing a different way of living. Knowing full well that if he goes there, there are huge ramifications. That's why the text says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Because that same guy could turn around and say, where are you going? I'm not going to stay. Why? He could say, because you're all a bunch of sinners, sick what's going on here, you all know it's wrong, and I'm going to tell. And he walks out. <laughs> and you know what would happen. It doesn't matter if he has a Jesus First t-shirt on or I love Jesus. His witness, he, he blew the opportunity. The idea is that we speak with gentleness and respect. Gentleness means meekness. It means humility, not responding in a harsh manner. The word respect means to be mindful of God, it means knowing who you are and knowing who God is should be in a, in a, an appropriate filter of what you say and how you say it. You see, this is, the, this is you feel the tension, the challenge? All of this opposition comes and you could easily take an off-ramp and just find some silly reason that you're gonna leave the party or some reason why you're not gonna do what you're gonna do and you gotta decide, am I gonna go there? Hmm. Am I gonna be harsh? Am I gonna be overly direct? One commentator says this, when believers encounter a hostile world and are challenged concerning their faith, the temptation to respond harshly increases. Defending a position could easily be transmuted into attacking one's opponents. So the idea is that you respond with grace, being mindful of God, but that you go there. Look, we all face this. I'm sitting in a haircut place, getting my hair cut. Nice young girl's cutting my hair, what's left of it. And she, she says invariably, so what do you do for a living? And I know, 
here we go. <laughs> and this conversation could be really awkward, and so could my hair. <laughs> and I say, I'm, I'm a pastor. And that changes everything about the conversation. And I've got seconds to decide, am I going to go there? So when you're sort of getting ready for your day and, and you, you face all sorts of situations exactly like this, the question at that moment is, am I, am I ready? And when I'm given an opportunity, am I going to go there? And when I go there, am I going to speak with, with grace and with kindness? Number four, Peter wants us to think about our, our long-term reputation even our reputation that will show up at Judgment Day. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So he uses the word conscience, here's why. Because these things aren't black and white. He uses conscience because you gotta decide when to take a stand and when not to, and when are you assertive and when are you deferring, and when are you maybe more clear than less clear, and you gotta decide, and every single one of us gotta make that decision, and that's really up between you and the Lord to figure that out. Is this the moment? Do I go here now? Some of you will have that over Easter weekend, and you have family over, and you're like, do we go here now or not? You're gonna have to decide who you're gonna invite, who you're not gonna invite. So the idea of this conscience issue is being because at the end of the day, it's not all simply black and white, easy decisions. And then he goes on and he says, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. At one level, this means that you have this, this, this life where you've made deposits in people's lives. You, you have this reputation of a good and godly character so that if you're ever slandered, other people could step up and say, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Now I know he's got a conviction about this. This is a good man. Like, this is a good woman. Like, like they, they followed the, the, the rules in our office for years. They've been a, they've been a good neighbor. Like, no, no, they, they love people. It's not that they, they don't like people. They love, they, like, they, they've shown me that they love me. And what that means is that through the course of your lifetime, with all sorts of small little decisions that you've made, you're building up sort of a portfolio that then people look at that then that moment stands upon. So if you're not in the middle of some really big crisis, just know that all the little decisions that you're making, the people that you're praying for, the folks that you're kind to, the way in which you're concerned about other people, all those things matter. And then the text points to a future day, particularly where persecutors will be held accountable as sort of the, the, the books are opened and it will be clear as to who was in the right. The meaning of the text is when they revile your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame. The idea is that Jesus himself will show them, I saw what you did, and you were wrong to persecute that person. And you know what? It, so, someone's going to hear this message and Honestly, you're a persecutor. You're here, you look all nice and cleaned up, but you know what you do behind the scenes. 
kind of playing a game. You make fun of people who have their convictions, and you, you try and put pressure on people because inside you feel guilty. I just want you to know, if that's your position today, and you, you, you honestly say, look, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I just kind of have this look about me in terms of how I conduct myself. I want you to know Jesus has seen everything of it, and you're not going to get away with it. And one day, your actions are going to be held to account. And my appeal to you would be, why would you wait to turn your life around and say, Jesus, i got to stop? He did that with the Apostle Paul. He can do it with you. And then finally, the question is, am I really suffering for righteousness? The text ends and it says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. So this seems rather obvious, but this is a very important question for us to ask. Verse 17 reminds us that just because you're a Christian and just because you have bad things doesn't mean you're being persecuted. So, kids, if your parents say, hey, you need to clean your room, you can't be like, oh, I'm being persecuted. <laughs> You're not. Your room's just a mess, right? Or if your boss isn't a believer and she gives you a bad evaluation because you're doing a bad job, you are not being persecuted even if she's not a believer and you are. So don't assume that every bad thing that happens to you is because you're being persecuted. Certainly God does and can use sinful people and opposition in order to get a believer's attention and to sanctify us. One of the things we need to ask ourselves is, am I being opposed because I'm arrogant? Because I'm hard to live with? Or because I'm a follower of Jesus? This is an important question to ask because we ought to not always assume that just because something bad happens that it's directly connected to our passion for the gospel. So we should not make our way through life assuming that everything bad that happens is because of some aspect of persecution. I find that that people who really are exiles, they know why they should ask this question. And people who don't really understand what exile living, like they never think to ask. Is this because of, of God's righteousness and because of what it means to be a Christian or just because there's some area of my life in which I need to grow up? So when you think of what's going on in your life, which of these five questions need to be brought to bear into your life? As you, as you think about how you even prepare for next week or for what's gonna happen over Easter, which of these questions are important? Am I keeping an eternal perspective? Am I more affected by the fear of man or the love of Christ? Am I talking about Jesus with clarity and kindness? Am I building a reputation that's honorable? Am I really suffering for righteousness? Some of you, let's be honest, your son or daughter doesn't want to come to church with you, not because they're so against Jesus. Let me be just lovingly clear. It's because you've given Jesus a bad rep in the context of your home. And before you invite them to Easter, you may just want to say, listen, I know, like, I haven't modeled this very well for you, and I'm really sorry. But please don't throw everything out because of how I haven't lived in a way that I should. When you go into your office, do you realize that 
Every decision that you make, how you perform as an employee, relates to an opportunity that may come your way someday where you're gonna have to name the name of Jesus. All of those things matter. And as you get ready for your day, as you get ready for your week, as you get ready for what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the world, the question is, how can you be prepared? Because when that moment comes, you're gonna have to decide like that. So I think it was freshman year of high school when I felt this really deeply. I was at a basketball camp. The guy was given a, coach was given kind of a motivational speech, told us we're not all gonna be NBA players, so stay in school, et cetera, et cetera. To illustrate his point, he was like, so you're gonna be doctors. Who wants to be a doctor? Stand up. Doctor stood up. Who wants to be dentist? Dentist, you stand up. Who wants to be a lawyer? Lawyer, lawyer, stand up. And then he would rather snide mark, look at his face. He goes, anybody wanna be a pastor? And I knew. I'd known for a long time. Yes, that's what I want to do. And so at that moment, I got seconds to decide. Am I going to go there? I'm a freshman. I stood. He looked at me. All of my teammates, like those couple hundred kids there, all looked at me. I could feel just this, the weight of what was happening in that moment. And then all week long, guess what I was called? Preacher. Pass the ball, preacher, pass the ball, preacher. Oh, preacher, follow me. Oh, preacher, follow me. Oh, 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 oh. All week long. I got this. And so, so then when that girl asks me, what do you do for a living? I think back to that high school moment. And I remember what happened. And friends, you've got seconds to decide when that opportunity comes. And the question that Peter would want us to consider is, are you ready for that moment? Are you ready to go there with a family member and ask them to come to Easter services? Are you ready to have that conversation with your coworker? Are you ready to have the policy that comes down from your HR department? You're like, ah, I just, I, I can't, I can't do this. Are you ready? Because Peter wants us to be prepared so that we'll not only be able to have the answer for the hope that's in us, but we'll also be able to make Jesus look glorious to a watching world who would say to us, that's crazy. Why would you do that? And our answer would be, because my king has no rival. And the gospel changed my life. And I owe him everything. And so it is my joy to follow him, even in this. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would pour out grace upon us today. For wherever you find us in this text, I ask you to give us mercy where we need it and the ability to be prepared for whatever it is that comes our way. There, there, there must be multiple people who are hearing this message who today are having to decide how in the world they're going to go there. So give them courage. And even, God, as we end our service, would you remind us of the beautiful things that we believe? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing at the end. We sing a great song. One of the new songs is part of the CD that the worship team has produced, I Cling to You. Towards the end of the song, I'm going to ask our elders to come up. They're just going to remain seated up here at the front, along with our um, pastoral residents, pastors. 
And at the end of the song, after we're done singing, we'd love just to be able to pray for you about anything going on in your life. Some of you are in the middle of the kind of opposition that we're talking about. You need courage. You need strength. You need to deal with your own anxiety. You've got someone you know that needs to be invited to come on Easter Sunday, and yet there's a barrier there. So why don't we cling to him and go the distance? So we'd love to be able to pray for you. Let's stand together. Let's seal the truth of this Sunday in our hearts today by singing.